The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So most of you know that uh, for the last couple months we've been looking at the Four Noble Truths as a basic map. This is the primary map the Buddha used in his 45 years of teaching way back when. First talk he gave was about this particular model or map that we use in to better understand our actual experience. But before I continue with that, I just want to check in about the practice and remind, like in the guided sits for the last number of weeks, I've been doing using the mindfulness of breathing instructions from the Buddha. There are 16 instructions. We just went through the first six of them tonight. So as you get interested and develop your practice, you might want to get a hold of all 16 instructions Over time, learn the map. Does it mean you'll always be able to practice at the more subtle end of the map? But it's a good idea to have a sense of the full range of that map, the mindfulness of breathing map. And it's really important to understand that that first part of the map, you know, just can you track the breath coming in? Can there be that simple non-judging awareness of the breath going out? That's a huge step, just to have some continuity of awareness with the breathing process is not, obviously it's not easy, because our mind, the habit of the mind is to get drawn back into the content, our worries, our hopes. There's a line that I read recently in one of, I forget what program, but it's from a traditional Tibetan text regarding Milarepa. He's sort of the patron saint of Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, I'm assuming that he's a true figure, but way back when, you know, 800 years ago or so. And uh, as he liberated himself or got a wise perspective of his own inner demons, they spoke to him and they said something, what was it? Uh, Demons lie in waiting along the steep slope of hope and fear. So a lot of our mental content, a lot of what we think about, is has to do with hopes and fears, right? About tomorrow, about next week, about our life, about what we did in the past. And whenever we're, the mind is involved in hope and fear, we're along that steep slope where the demons lie in waiting. Because it's very easy Once we start to entertain our hopes and fears, it's very easy to be swept away. When we're swept away, when we're lost in thought, there's no, like whatever wisdom there may be, it's not active. Because the mind, in order for wisdom to be active, taking care of us, we have to be in the present moment. There has to be an awareness, it's like this. But when I'm lost in my thoughts about hope and fear, I'm not aware it's happening here. It's just a thought being thought here and now in the moment. No, I mean, by definition, being lost means we're in that bubble. 
not aware it's just a thought happening here in the moment. So many times, many, many, many times we go from being lost to realizing, oh, there's a body here. There's sensations right here. Well, can this be okay? Is this, could this possibly be a suitable ground for awareness, knowing the body, the sitting body is like this, right? And then there, making peace with the experience of the body as it actually is, right there in the middle of that experience is the next inhalation, the next exhalation. And we use that natural process of breathing as a training ground. We're training, we're retraining the mind or training the mind to be aware of the present moment as a preventative, like the being aware of the body or being aware of the, of the sensations of breathing. It's sort of a preventative mechanism to keep the mind from sliding in, being drawn into worry, planning, judging, comparing, remembering, wondering, fantasizing, analyzing, all of that activity, which is quite useful in moments. But the problem is it begins to be our substitute life and then eventually becomes the only life we know. It's like we don't know ourselves. We don't recognize ourselves unless we're lost in wondering or analyzing or fantasizing, comparing, judging, fretting, whatever it might be. That's sort of who or what we take ourselves to be. Is this obsessive, ongoing, never-ending narration, commentary, inner dialogue? So when we take up the training ground of being aware of the body, being aware of the breath coming in, being aware of the breath going out, and really see it as a a beautiful and powerful challenge to sustain awareness from the very beginning of an in-breath to the end, from the very beginning of the out-breath to the end, we see we see it as sort of a, like, I mean, not to be dramatic, but like a life and death activity. Because quite literally, the life of being in the present moment will cease as soon as we take the bait and we feels rational to worry about what am I going to do on Monday? Will I get the work done? Or, oh, this might happen. This great thing might happen to me. And then I'm in that bubble, the bubble of my particular story about this particular content, and and that's the steep slope of fear and hope, where the demons lie awaiting. Because where the demons are, those contracted states that we get lost in because whatever we're, whatever that bubble has to do with, we have a strong opinion about, you know, this attachment. We cling, we grasp, we're afraid, we want, we hate. It's like our dreams, you know, it's like it's hard enough having one human life, but every night we have a different human life and sometimes a lot more intense than the life we're having when we're not dreaming. Ever wake up and feel like, I need to go to bed? <laughs> it's like, that was intense. You know, I need a break from my dream life. 
you know, I need to disappear into sleep. But we just get drawn back into more drama. Because surprisingly, as intense as that is, as exhausting as it is, it's very familiar. The intense self-dramas are very familiar. So we tend to replicate them in our dreams, in our day awakened states. We just keep replicating self-drama. So that's the thing about mindfulness of breathing. The first two instructions, can we be aware of the in and out breath enough to notice when it's a long breath, alert enough to notice when it's a short breath? It's not about making it long or short, but being present enough, sensitive enough to comprehend the quality of each inhalation, each exhalation. Or is the mind too forgetful, too scattered, too disconnected to even notice that? Because you know how it is, it can be, I sort of am aware of my in-breath, sort of aware of my out-breath, but not really there enough to know. It's like that, We same thing with conversations with our dear friends. We're sort of there, we're sort of listening, but we're not really there. We're not really showing up. And then, you know, we can almost pick up by the tone of their voice that they're getting to the end of whatever they're talking about. And then we immediately, like, tune in so we, we know whether we're supposed to be nodding or doing this or, you know, to prompt them to continue so we can continue being spaced up. And that sort of is our life, is we're not really there. And <clears throat> the thing is, wherever we are, wherever the mind is, is a construction of the mind itself. It's really not that much different than a dream we might have when we're asleep. So this training of being in the present moment and using, like we do with mindfulness of breathing, using the physicality of the breathing process as a training ground <clears throat> to sustain present moment awareness through the duration of an in-breath, through the duration of an out-breath. And it's not about controlling it or trying to fix it or needing it to be different than it is. It's about training the mind not to forget it. So through that short interval of time from the beginning of the in-breath to the end, is there a way to be fully present, alert, relaxed, not controlling, not needing the in-breath to be different than it is? And then the same again with the out-breath. And then one half breath at a time for a period of time. And then when that, when we get relatively good at that, have enough continuity, then we take up the next instruction. Okay, with that continuity, that remembering, this is the in-breath, it's like this. Out-breath is happening, it's like this. Sensations of breathing in, it's like this. Breathing out is like this. Then... Can we relax the awareness or trust the awareness to be even more natural? Because awareness is naturally inclusive, not exclusive. So initially, we have to be sort of intentional. Like, I really want to notice the in-breath. I really want to notice the out-breath. Because we need that intentionality, almost a willfulness, in order to break the habit of going back to thought, lost in thought. So we have that more willful, intentional quality. But then when we have some continuity, we relax that and we allow the more inclusive or holistic quality of awareness to manifest. 
So we're there, we're still noticing the sensations of breathing in, but right there and noticing the sensations of breathing in, we're aware of the whole body. Breathing out, knowing the sensations of breathing out, and knowing the whole body. So the Buddha says, breathing in, experience the whole body. Breathing out, experience the whole body. And that holistic, all-inclusive, everything-belongs kind of awareness is calming. So then the fourth instruction is breathing in, noticing the calming effect of that holistic awareness. Breathing out, calming the body. So in a way, there is a powerful healing happening. The way the mind is relating to the body. And remember, awareness of the body is just a training ground for present moment awareness. So we're using the concreteness, the in a sense, the grossness, the availability of sensation, we're using it as a training ground for awareness to be in the present moment, not lost in mental constructions. Thoughts about this, opinions about this, worries about this and that. But right here in the elemental nature of the present moment. So when we have that more inclusive awareness breathing in, that more inclusive awareness breathing out, then notice the calming effect. Wherever, however you feel it, it might be just sort of in a particular part of the body, might feel sort of safe, released, trustworthy. Then if you notice it there, then it, it has the nature to expand so that eventually the whole body basically is reflecting the healing quality, the quality of a all-inclusive awareness that is accepting of the body as it is. So it doesn't mean that the sensations of the body are perfect, delightful, pleasant. It just means there's a very beautiful relationship that the mind has with the body, an accepting, an interested, loving presence, breathing in, feeling the whole body, breathing out, feeling the whole body. So we keep doing that, training in that way, until that sense of calm is pretty pervasive through the body. Greater stability, breathing in, breathing out, appreciating the pervasiveness of the calm as you breathe in and out. And that stability, being sort of trusting the mind, knowing the body, like that's it's feeling like a very solid, a very trustworthy place for awareness to be. And the more trust, the more safety, the more the mind begins to intuit that everything is moving. Everything's happening on its own. Thoughts, body sensations, feeling, emotion, sound, sight. And that free movement is delightful. It's joy. We call it piti or joy or delight. And so we just, again, stay. we're just doing the same thing, right? We're breathing in, knowing the sensations of breathing in, knowing the whole body, knowing the calm in the body. Now, you don't have to think about all these different pieces because it's just that moment as it is. But now you're tuning in to a more subtle quality of joy. So the Buddha says, breathing in, experiencing joy. Breathing out, experiencing joy. So this just continues from gross to more and more and more subtle aspects of the present moment. 
we're not looking at a different experience. It's always the same experience. It's the way it is now. <laughs> Breathing in, knowing the way it is now. Breathing out, knowing the way it is now. The breath is a the basic tether that we use because the mind learns to associate feeling the, the breath as a sort of a gateway to the present moment, a reminder that this is how it is. And you can think of the present moment as this, but there's this whole range, like different frequencies of this, subtle and not so subtle. And on the not so subtle end, it's the actual touching sensations as air touches the nostrils or the actual physical sensations of movement as the belly, the wall of the abdomen expands with the in-breath and then contracts with the out-breath. And then on a more subtle level, it's just a, sort of this ball of sensation, breathing in, feeling the whole orb of sensation in the body, breathing out, feeling the orb, feeling the calm, like the knowing mind, knowing the sensations, that relationship between the knowing and the sensations is very settled, is very accepting. So we notice that acceptance, the calm of the knowing mind, knowing the body sensations. And then we notice the joy. Joy is that movement. Joy matures when we see a lot of joy and we see it pervasively in our body-mind experience as we breathe in and breathe out. That brings up or helps to reveal a sense of inner happiness or, ah, the heart's release, the relaxation of the heart or the contentedness of the heart. The heart not needing things to be different than they are. That can actually be noticed. As you breathe in, you notice the inner ease of the heart. As you breathe out, you notice it. But that feeling of contentedness or inner ease it's right there with the sensations, the gross sensations of breathing in and out, the feeling of the whole body, the calm in the body, the joy in the mind. All of that is right here. There's really only one location for awareness, right? Here, this. It's only our concepts or our ideas about things that make it seem like there are all these different things I could do with my awareness. I could be aware of that over there or this in here or this, that aspect. So we do direct. But the Buddha's really trained, we're training our mind to go from gross to subtle. That even at the gross level, we're having a sense of holistic, like it's just this experience being known. And the fact that the mind is tuning into the sensations of touch at the nostrils is just a convenience to connect with this, like a gross doorway to connect with the whole, the all of the present moment. Do you get that sense even right now that this moment is not two things or 10,000 things? There's just this, this actual experience that's being known. Each person knowing the experience that's here and now, right? It's just one thing. And we could train our mind to sort of, where there's the pink of the shawl and the sound of the fan and the pressure of the knee on the cushion, 
right? So with concept and with effort, I can diversify my experience, you know, break it up. But when the mind, when the knowing mind is more released, relaxed, then the tendency is towards a holistic experience, which is calming, which exposes joy, and then a deeper resonant happiness, you could call the Pali word sukha, which is opposite of dukkha. Some of you who've been around know the word dukkha, which is the basic word for suffering or stress or unease of the heart. So sukha is the opposite of that, sort of a pleasant release, ease of the heart. And then from there, that more stability, then the then we use the awareness from that place of real stability and refinement. We use the awareness to uh, sort of realize a deeper quiet, deeper stillness. And from there, a deeper understanding of the process nature of experience. That, <clears throat> that as the mind gets more refined, it notices that there's no ground anywhere. The only ground, the only stability is one that the thinking mind creates when it has a concept. So that leads to more profound letting go, which is in the direction of liberation. And you can look at those later instructions. Uh, so you go to the website, kamgarmeditation.org. You look under the main menu item, teachings. Under teachings, you'll see the menu item, resources. You click there, and then one of the resources will be the link. It says something like mindfulness, notes for mindfulness of breathing. If you click there, you'll get a handout you can print, and it will give you the 16 instructions that the Buddha used, and then comments from a number of our contemporary teachers about each of the 16 instructions for mindfulness of breathing. And it just will be a good cheat sheet to have next to your meditation cushion. Um, just to help you learn the map. Any questions about the meditation instructions before we go on? Yeah, Danielle. I have a question about, I really like the 16 instructions because it does help me calm, but how does that fit with the idea that we're being with whatever is there? Like, for example, when we get to the joy and the sort of lightness, I've had a couple sits where I feel literally heavy. I don't feel it. I can't find it. So... How does how do those two kind of gel? Mm-hmm. Well, in the context of this practice, you probably would back up at that point. I mean, you could you could really stay there for a while, and if you had a lot of confidence, even if there's a lot of heaviness in your body mind experience, with a lot of confidence, there's always joy there. It just might be really faint, and you might because like in that seemingly pervasive experience of heaviness in your body and your mind, there will be some places that are relatively more heavy and some places that are relatively less heavy, right? So if you really tune into the place that's relatively less heavy, you can notice the lightness, the relative lightness of that. And if you tune into that movement, the it's less fixed, right? Because joy is the opposite of something being solid or fixed. It's flow, it's movement. So if you start to tune to where you sense, the awareness senses some flow, some movement, something not fixed, 
and notice the pleasantness of that, things can open up. But if, you know, sometimes the mind's just not subtle enough to notice that. So then we back up and we might go back to just breathing and feeling the whole body. Breathing out, feeling the whole body. And then really have that more first, more gross sense of happiness, of calm. Just a real basic sense of trust of the body and the calm in the body. Trusting the way that it is. And not feel like you have to go beyond that. Because some sits, when the mind's more wild, all we can do is return to the first instruction and then we get swept away. And then we come back to the first instruction, which is just tracking the physical sensations of the breath itself. We're not even getting to the whole body awareness or a sense of calm in the body. So at what state would you be mindful of a mind state like dullness or heaviness? Or mm-hmm. In those instructions, where would you be actually turning your attention toward the Fixedness. Yes. So, in a more open awareness practice, as soon as that was the predominant experience, then we would let that heaviness be the primary object of meditation. So we would know, okay, heaviness. It's just heaviness being known, and that's a very can be a very powerful practice. But a lot of times, when we when we want to do a more open awareness practice, where whatever is predominant gets to be the object of awareness. We don't have enough steadiness not to get caught and reactive, especially to unpleasant states like feeling dull or feeling heavy or a mind that's sad or a mind that's restless. And we react to it and we're, we get lost in thinking very quickly. So with this training, it has, like you suggested, Daniel, a real emphasis on calm in the early instructions. So we're, we're developing a head of steam of calm, joy, ease. And then the next two instructions are really more in the vipassana, the wisdom end of things. Because you're breathing in, you're noticing the activity of mind. And in particular, you're, in particular, you're noticing the feeling tone. That comes after that inner ease or sukha. So the next instruction is one trains oneself breathing in, noticing the formations of the mind, the mental activity, and in particular, the Buddha is asking us to notice how that feels. Now, it's hard to notice the pleasant and unpleasantness of whatever's predominant and like, or whatever the mind is doing without getting seduced by it. So, but now we're feeling pretty calm, joyful, and especially easeful, real settled. So now, because of that settledness, the mind is much less likely to be seduced by noticing the different feelings that come and go. And the more you can see feeling without being confused by it, liking, wanting the pleasant feelings, wanting to get rid of the unpleasant feelings, now you have a neutral or equanimous relationship to the feeling. It's just this pleasant feeling being known as I'm breathing in. Just the unpleasant feeling being known as I breathe out then the mind gets really quiet because so much of the lack of stillness in the mind is because it's getting pushed around by feeling tone, wanting to hold on to a good, pleasant feeling, wanting to get rid of an unpleasant feeling. And so that leads the mind to a more still place. And then the wisdom, the vipassana practice, the insight practice, is just being done at a more subtle level now because now the mind's really quiet. 
So now you can notice this, you know, the mind itself. So now you're still doing mindfulness of mind. That's the third set of four instructions. It's all about mindfulness of the mind. But the mind is really refined. So it's going to really be able to see the activity of mind without getting caught up in it. And then from there, the underlying qualities of all experience, the impermanent nature of all experience, basically, from there. That's the fourth set. Yeah. Yeah, Ben. In the last month, I, I've been able to catch my thoughts right as they're beginning, the stories right as they're beginning. I can meet them in the open, and I can. There, there's a moment where I can kind of torque myself back to the breath, and it feels very violent. And is it okay to be kind of like a slap like that, or should I be more gentle? <laughs> it's amazing how when you say things out loud like that, the answer becomes pretty apparent. It's like, yeah, go ahead and slap it. And sometimes once with the right and then again with the left. And then kick it in the groin. And then you should be good. <laughs> but but it, Ben's point is actually a really good one because it's true in the beginning when our awareness is really tenuous, like we really don't have a lot of momentum of just the awareness being in the present moment. It is, like I said earlier, a little bit life and death. Not life and death in terms of losing our physical existence, but that birth of the mind being present is likely to die very quickly if we don't intervene. And sometimes the intervention that's required is a bit of a slap. You know, it's like, don't go there. You know, in the same way if a you're a parent and you saw your child about to put a bobby pin in the electrical outlet, you know, you would be, your response would be pretty fierce. You wouldn't hold back. If you're looking at me, he's a young child. It's like, <laughs> and uh, so, and sometimes that's how it is with our minds. It's like, finally, we have a few moments where the mind is in balance. It's like, we're always sort of zipping past that beautiful balance point and immediately getting distracted again and then and so we're there and all of a sudden we happen like Ben's suggesting to see about how we're about to fall into distraction and we want to rush in so initially we do and we use too much force but that's totally understandable because we know if we if we're not if we don't hurry up we're just going to fall in now that you've been practicing for a while, Ben, and you have some momentum in your practice, and like you say, you're catching the thoughts coming in right at the beginning, you might just check and see if the awareness of the distraction coming in, if the awareness is enough to take care, like enough of an intervention. You don't actually have to do anything but notice the distraction coming in. And you might find that that's enough. Because all the way along, we have to start teasing out the aggressiveness, the sort of forcefulness of our meditation interventions. Ultimately, our meditation intervention is radical trust, right? It's not much of an intervention. But initially, and at times when our mind is really wild, we need a more forceful intervention. And the Buddha describes it in pretty graphic terms. He says, in the same way that a strong person would grab a weaker person, throw them down, hold them down, pin them down, 
in the same way you should crush mind with mind, right? So you have the intention to fantasize or have the intention to obsess about how you want to get revenge or, you know, whatever your obsession might be, and wisdom sees it. And it sees that you have about a tenth of a second to intervene before the mind falls into that well-greased habit of worrying, obsessing, revenge, fantasy, or whatever it might be. And so you grab that tendency with even more intentionality. So you have the intention to fantasize or to, you know, complain or blame. And then you rev up an even stronger intention. No, you don't, you know, because the without doing that, the mind would just... And anything is basically better than letting the mind spin with greed or aversion. Right? The last thing we want to do is just let the mind get completely lost in a greed fantasy or an aversion fantasy. Because all it's doing is reinforcing habits that cause our self-suffering, and if they get acted out in the world, then we cause other people suffering. But that we, we don't want to only have that move, right? Because that move is only as a last resort when we don't have any more refined, subtle move that will work. And at the other end of the spectrum, uh, we need the lightest touch possible. So when the mind is aware of the mind and the activity of the mind, and maybe even an old habit having gotten triggered, an old habit of maybe, oh, poor me, right? And But now it's arising and the mind is pretty refined and the mind sees it like Ben suggests right at the beginning. And so... What the mind does, the intervention is radical trust, like knowing that it's this pattern, knowing that this pattern is unskillful, noticing that it's just this pattern, it's not me or mine, it's just a habit, is enough. Because then it blossoms, because it has momentum from the past, but the mind isn't feeding it, the mind isn't confused by it, and it very quickly falls away. You, no ego being needs to intervene to make it go away. It goes away on its own. So we need to be able to practice at that more refined end of the spectrum too. And then of course everywhere in between that really more gross or you know, heavy-handed way and that light-handed way of practicing. Yeah, I don't know your name. Um, my name is Anna. Hi, Anna. I once had an instructor called it puppy mind. Um, you had a puppy and you were trying to guide it back on the newspaper. It helped me. But just to see my mind is not a good thing or a bad thing. It's something that needed a gentle but firm hand. Yeah. Yeah, so if you didn't hear her, she, she said that she had an instructor who used this puppy metaphor and it's one that's been around a lot. I'm not sure who origin who started that that simile, but you know, when you train a puppy not to pee on the couch, on the carpet, you're really patient with it because it's just a puppy. And you bring it and you put it on the newspaper or you carry it into the backyard. And then and then you begin to notice the signs like the puppy's about to pee, you know. <laughs> and And you realize, I mean, not everybody realizes this, but screaming at the puppy can make a really neurotic puppy. But... 
to reward the puppy when it knows, you know, or when it shows you its distress, and when you can get it out and it pees on the paper or pees out in the backyard, you know, and you're really patient because you know the puppy is just the puppy, and it's exactly the same as our mind. Our mind is just the mind. The habit energy of the mind has already been set in motion, and that habit energy is not personal. You didn't personally arrange your habit energy, your personality, to be the way it is. It just so happens to be that way because of all the cultural conditioning, all the different forces. So we need to relate to the mind with a lot of patience. Yeah. Anything else about these mindfulness of breathing instructions? Yes. Yeah, my name's Anne. Um, when I think of it like a fight, you know, with the thoughts coming and trying to fight them so that they're not there, it's too difficult for me. So I just kind of let them come and go, but not like attach to them or run away with them. So I don't know if that's kind of what you're talking about or... When you can do that, that's exactly how you should practice. So when the wisdom and the continuity of awareness is strong, then don't turn thoughts into the bad guy. They're just thoughts. Even really despicable thought, a really like bring to mind the most despicable thought you ever had. I remember one of our teachers here saying, uh, when she, she had her first and only child when she was like 42. And, she, you know, she was a pretty together person, had practiced a lot, and then had a kid. And uh, so those of you who have children, I don't have my own, uh, know how frustrating and challenging it can be. And remembering at times, you know, she revealed at times, like, really wanting that child not to be there. <laughs> I'm not sure how far the despicable thought went. But we all have had our despicable thoughts. But we can bring that despicable thought to our mind right now and realize it's just a thought. It's just a thought. Like sometimes when we're being bothered by everybody around us, we just want them gone. You know? You're sitting and somebody behind you is sniffling the whole time. You don't really care whether that person belongs in the group. You just want them gone. And if you weren't careful and you had psychic powers, you know, you would. You're just saying, you don't exist anymore. You're, you're a bother. So to have, to sort of see, but that thought is just a thought. But if I personalize it, then I can have a lot of shame, a lot of guilt. I can feel very, like it's very appropriate to beat myself up. Or if I have a really sublime, beautiful thought, I'd like, really like all of you to know that because I want you to honor me for having such a beautiful thought. But we don't have to personalize them. And that's sort of what I heard you say in, in how you're working with them. Thoughts are just thoughts. They come and go. Like one simile that's used a lot is like clouds in the sky. They come and go. There can be a really stormy cloud, but it's just a cloud. It doesn't really you know, t- take the sun away. It's just a temporary, could be a week, you know, that we're locked in with clouds, but it's not forever. Yeah, thanks. Anything else about the meditation practice? Yeah. Um, 
So I, I, the, the steps that are laid out, um, I sometimes find knowing the map kind of distracting um, at the very beginning of learning to practice. But uh, in the sense that I sort of get a continuity of awareness going, and then I sort of, wait, is this calm? Is this what calm is? I sort of think about like, another time I was calm, and the sort of proliferation of thoughts goes on from there. Yeah. So it's true, you know, when we have a map, then it's just another thing that the mind can obsess about. But if we don't have a map, the mind's going to obsess about something else anyway, right? So, but the, what you have to, what we have to keep reminding ourselves of is the map is pointing to present moment phenomena. So the first two instructions, the map is pointing to the physical sensations of breathing in and the physical sensations of breathing out. And the second instruction, the map is saying, notice the whole body. Notice the whole body. Notice the calming effect of that whole body awareness. Notice the calming effect of that whole body awareness. So initially, it takes a little reflection to have a sense of what does whole body awareness mean? What does calm mean? What does joy mean? What does ease mean? But after a while, we know what it means. And so then the word, when it comes to mind, is directing, it's like framing our experience because it really matters what we pay attention to. So to be able to tease out the different things in the present moment. So the Buddha is really stepping the mind toward a more refined, quiet place. And if all we did is notice what was agitating, what was painful, we might learn some things, but often we don't have enough stability to look at what's agitating. So we look at it and we just get more agitated. This is a mistake people that happen with meditators a lot because they hear meditation instructions that are more in the direction of what we call open awareness practice. We're just noticing whatever's predominant. And they're sitting there and they they have a lot of faith because it makes sense that just being in the present moment with whatever's happening would be really skillful, and it is. But let's say they have a lot of mental agitation or a lot of physical pain or a lot of emotional pain. And so they're sitting there and that's the biggest thing in the room. So they keep looking at it. They look at their sadness or they look at their agitation or they look at their restlessness and it makes them more restless and they look at it and it makes them more restless and they keep looking at it but they don't have enough wisdom in the mind, enough space in the mind, enough settledness of the awareness to actually see that it isn't personal. The mind can't help but interpret that agitation as personal. And so because it's personal, the mind feels like it should personally react to it and on and on like that. So this that's why it's useful to uh, use a set of instructions that initially emphasizes calm. And we emphasize calm by paying attention not to what's agitating, but to what's calming. Paying attention to the breath for most people is calming. I could say, somebody could say, okay, sit down, sit comfortably, bring your attention to what's unpleasant in your body and notice that. And to some degree, 
we have to do that. We have to make peace of the basic discomfort of the body just to feel even settled to some degree. That if that's all I do, then I may not, my calm, the steadiness of my practice may only go so far. So we have to be willing to try out different instructions. I mean, basically we have to realize people have learned some things over the years, you know. And we have to, we want to listen to what they've learned and check it out and see if it's skillful, like if it actually supports our practice. Yeah, thanks for the question. Tim? Oh, that was a Jedi move for you. <laughs> I saw you twitch. I did, I was thinking about asking a question. I don't know if you want to start talking about the noble truths. So. Uh, there's nine minutes left, so. Oh, really? Yeah. All right, I'll ask. Um, yeah, so I, I, uh, I've noticed lately my, my mind has been really distracted. And, and when I'm meditating, my attention just shifts around to a lot of different things, a fragment of a thought and a physical sensation and then whatever it is. And, and, it, and traditionally, when I've experienced that, I've practiced this, like, mind-crushing mind approach. Like, I need the puppies, like, got to pee and I got to, like, grab it. Um, but I found that, that to be frustrating and I've been playing with like an open awareness practice even though I don't feel like my mind maybe is in a very refined place mm-hmm. and it seems to be going pretty well um, I mean I definitely I still notice myself getting distracted once in a while but I find myself getting distracted less frequently than when I'm trying to like make it really narrow yeah no I, that makes a lot of sense and there are different personalities and that's that's why like at Common Ground we teach a handful of different approaches because people will take to different practices. And those of you who've been around for a while know that for a long time we haven't done the systematic mindfulness of breathing instructions. It's sort of like a three-year loop where I sort of pick it up and work it with the group for several months. And even if it's not your way, it's probably good to play with it a little bit just because you'll learn some things about the open awareness practice that can be quite supportive, that you can integrate in in your own way. So it is useful to, to have more than a few strategies that you can draw on. Some people really benefit from the more structured approach and the approach that emphasizes calm initially a lot more than the open awareness practice does. And it's good to know the shadow. The shadow of a more structured approach like mindfulness of breathing is we get really attached to the structure. And we want to do it right, and you know we sort of get greedy with it, looking for the next thing, wanting the next thing, and the <clears throat> and so there's there sort of can be this residual of attachment, identification with the structure itself. The problem with the open awareness practice or the shadow to it that can be not seen is that we feel like we're present, that the awareness is pretty superficial, and there's just a lot of uh, scatteredness that goes undetected because there's nothing to reveal the scatteredness of the mind, the attention. Like with the mindfulness of breathing, as soon as we know we're not aware of the in-breath or the out-breath, we know we've lost the thread of the practice. There's no pretending. But with open awareness practice, how do we know we've lost the thread of the practice? So that's the shadow But the positive with the open awareness practice is right from the beginning, we have this, we're sort of cultivating this view that everything belongs 
because nothing is personal. So I don't need to react. I don't need to evaluate the value of whatever's showing up emotionally, in terms of mental content, in terms of sensation or sound or sight. It's just another phenomena being known. It's just this being known. Can this be okay? And now this, and now this. So it really lends itself to the ultimate move, which is just to let everything be. But it's harder, you know. So it's messier initially, for sure. Anything else? Yeah, Lewis. I think one of the things that will at least happen for me, um, as, as my practice continued, I'd be surprised by some of the content in my mind and then have a lot of judgments about that. And, you know, that could start another loop going. But uh, if I just came back to the, the whole idea of letting it dissipate on its own, and that it wasn't really about me, uh, I could, you know, be at peace with it. And generally, the quieter the mind gets, the more likely there will be moments of something very seductive coming up. It's almost like a vacuum. The mind gets quieter and quieter, stiller, more peaceful. And whatever might be lurking, you know, in our subconscious, in the sort of dispositional field, then in a way it gets drawn into that vacuum. Oh, whatever it is. And it could be quite seductive, positive and negative, so not always scary. It could be a sublime experience. But it's basically a hook, right? Something that tends to trigger attachment, identification, and then from there, spinning. So yeah, this exactly what you said sounds right. And some people even have a little phrase at the ready, something like, sometimes it's like this. So something really profoundly difficult arises in your mind. Well, sometimes it's like this. Or something sublime arises. Sometimes it's like this. Sometimes it's like this. Well, in, in my travels over the past year, one of the things I kept running into was ways I had internalized a lot of oppression that you know, just came out of being born here. And um, I kind of thought I was past a lot of stuff. And so there was this first maybe uh, reaction to have judgment. Then I was able to like switch it to, oh, thank you for letting me see that. Yeah. That's a sign of somebody really on the path. When they see stuff they haven't seen clearly before, the attitude is one of gratitude. Because somebody who's really on the path is always grateful to see what they haven't seen. Because it's so much better to see it than for it to be operating unconsciously. And uh, so when you start seeing really sticky stuff about your personality or about your cultural conditioning, we want to be grateful because it's there already. (laughs) And the best place for it to be is out in the light of awareness, of wisdom. We're just so much, and this is true like in our intimate relationships, you know, really healthy relationship are not the ones that are squeaky clean. They're the ones where all the laundry's out there, you know, and we see in each other and in ourselves 
all of the unfinished business of our personalities and we're making peace with it because sometimes it's like that. You know, it's like one of the things that I hopefully uh, raises our eyebrows is when this sort of narrative in our culture about, you know, uh, America's exceptionalism. (laughs) You know, this idea of, you know, we don't make mistakes. Or we don't have a sordid history or a sordid presence, a present time in terms of our way of being in the world and how we treat each other and how we treat other people around the world. And it's somehow like it's insulting to, they've been talking about our president this way, like he doesn't love America because he sometimes mentions our imperfections. But to me, it's like as a practitioner, this is our sign of real power and strength. And you can feel it in the room sometimes when you hear people sharing about their lives and the fearlessness about people's willingness to talk openly about the nature of the mind. And it's not so pretty sometimes. And that's okay. In fact, it's actually empowering to point to that. That truth. That this mind, this personality, the condition of this mind is not me or mine, it's just simply the product of our culture. So why do we expect it to be perfect or even pretty? You know, it should be like our culture, a real mixed bag. Some things that are relatively noble and beautiful and a lot that's pretty simplistic and based in sort of our reptilian brains, you know, greed, anger, and delusion. And that's just how it is. And we can be really upfront about that, and even that alone, even without a lot of skill, but just being honest is sort of liberating, isn't it? To be honest with each other about our conditioning. And with that in mind, I'll just mention uh, Terry Karras is going to be doing a three-week class, but you can come just to the first night if you can't make the others on Thursday night. So it begins the 12th, a week from this Thursday, not this Thursday, but the next week. Understanding our racial selves, racial moments as spiritual practice. And she's a professor at UW-Wisconsin, River Falls, and uh, teaches multiculturalism. She's also the wife of an African-American man and the mother of two African-American children. She's a white woman herself. And just this whole world of understanding the experience of privilege, understanding our cultural conditioning, and understanding that, like we've, I've just been talking about, putting, understanding, seeing the experience of privilege, or as Lewis was saying, seeing the experience of oppression as it's there, even if we're not conscious of it, bringing it into the light of day, it's liberating. But it's really messy and it's scary. We don't want to see this stuff. We'd rather think, I'm not prejudiced or something like that. But it's so much more liberating to begin to bring it out into the open and to be honest about this cultural conditioning. And it's not personal, but in a sense, we're personally responsible for seeing it. Just because it's not me or mine, I didn't do it, doesn't mean I can ignore it. We have to see it for what it is. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. 
To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.